Welcome to the Brain Trust Driving Change Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Bloomfield. Whether you're a leader, a coach, a salesperson, or even a parent, this podcast focuses on how to leverage the science of decision-making to help you become a more impactful communicator and a driving force for change. Well, welcome back to the Driving Change Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Bloomfield. And today's guest, I will tell you what, listen to this audience. So there's a lot of people that can communicate good information. Now there's a handful fewer that can take information and turn it into inspiration. And then there's a very thin slice few select people that can take information, turn it into inspiration that leads to activation. Today's guest, Esther Choi, is one of those select people. And I can't wait for you to listen and learn from her because I already have been just through her work. Uh, She's the president and and chief storyteller, facilitator at this amazing place called the Leadership Story Lab. Esther has done amazing work in the field of business storytelling, communication. She's been featured in Forbes. She's the host and executive producer for the Kellogg School of Management's podcast, Family in Business. Um, a couple other things you're going to find interesting about her. She just wrote a book. It's, it's, it's only a few years old. It's called Let the Story Do the Work. And what I love and appreciate the most about her book is it's a storytelling toolkit. It's not just a book about storytelling. There's a lot of those out there, but it's a toolkit, which gives you templates and it gives you principles and, and really good examples. And um, I can't wait for you to hear more from her. So I'll stop talking and welcome our guest, Esther Choi, to the podcast. Can't wait to hear what you have to tell us today. Thanks, thanks for coming on. Wow. Thank you, Jeff. I think you should interview yourself and, <laughs> and showcase to your listener how you go from information to inspiration to activation. I'm already pumped. So thank you. Let's go. No pressure. No <laughs> pressure. So that's great. Well, I, I gave you a list of accolades. And as you and I both know, most people don't care about what we've accomplished, but they do care about how we've helped others accomplish what they want to accomplish in life. And that's what I love about you is your passion for helping others communicate more effectively. Now, as you know, because you've listened to the show before, and we've talked about this in the pre-show, and all my listeners know where everybody starts is we're going to go back to that origin story. So take us back to, you know, at some point in your life, you were around somebody that influenced you in a meaningful way from a storyteller standpoint. And I think I might know who that is for you, but I want to hear your story, your version of that origin story. Where did those storytelling seeds get planted? Well, your origin story, Jeff, um, has a lot to do with your grandfather, Papa. And mine, I think I have two sets of people. One is a single individual. The other is a whole mass of people. So let me tell you about the single individual first. Um, as you might remember, you know, as kids, you know, you get, in, you, you get into all sorts of trouble when you get reprimanded and slapping the hand for it. And I had my fair fair share, but I somehow always remember that the lessons that I learned from my dad and um, not in a negative way, but in all my fond memory, all traces back to the little stories that he would tell me. Um, For example, he uh, one day wanted to uh, teach me about honesty, but of course he wouldn't start out by saying, okay, sweetie, sit down, let me tell you a story. 
he just somehow, I don't even remember how he began. He just told me about how one day when he was a little boy and he came home from school, a relative was visiting from afar and they gave him some money to get snacks. And then he went back um, to return the change. And that was something that his parents held up as something that really he's proud of. He's honest because the relative gave him the money as in that's for you to spend however you want. You don't have to give it back to me. But he took it upon his himself to make sure he returned every single penny. So things like that, that I didn't know I was being influenced and taught. And I just thought I was spending time with my dad. After that, I would say it was a whole mass of people who were trying to apply to elite business schools, to MBA programs. I was fortunate enough to be an admission officer uh, from 2004 to 2007 at Chicago Booth School of Business. And I read my share of thousands and thousands of applications and interview people. I actually had the added role to train um, our graduate assistants as well as our alumni to also read applications and interview along with us. And Every year we reject so many, so many highly qualified people. It's um, becoming a, a process of numbness that, oh yeah, you know, so you've, you know, set up a NGO in a poor village in India that to us it was like, yeah, that's nice, but we've seen like hundreds of those. What else do you have? <laughs> And um, But then someone get in, every year we have a class. And so I eventually realized that, that, you know, qualification is just not enough. You got to be able to connect the facts in your lives and able to tell it in ways that resonate with decision makers. So that's the start and really the end of, of everything is that some, some people are able to advance, but a lot don't. What makes the difference is storytelling. Mm, that's good. And you know what I love about the first story that you told about your father is, again, you're around these things and sometimes, you know, the best lessons in life are caught, not taught, right? And you're, you're listening to someone like your dad tell a story. And at the time, you think about some parents could say, hey, you know what? Listen, Esther, you've got to be honest all the time, always. Be a person of integrity, okay? And, and what we know now about the science behind that is, is that most of us interpret those things as judgmental. So it triggers the part of our brain that kicks into self-preservation and all of our defense mechanisms come, come, you know, all those shields come up. But a great parent, a great communicator that can tell you a story about a time in their life when either they weren't honest and, and got taught how to be, or they were honest and got got really... Reinforced. Yeah, heralded and reinforced for it. Then suddenly you go, well, then I want to be honest. And you, you, you now, now you learn that lesson. And one of the things that you say that I love is a goal of a story is to inspire action. T tell us more about that. Well, of course, there are plenty of storytellers who just like to tell stories because they are real who they really are entertainers. You know, they thrive in the smile, the the laugh, and, you know, maybe the tears. Uh, I don't know anybody like that, by the way. I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know maybe one or two in my life. Um, but to us, right, why we do what we do is 
yes, entertainment is nice, but the end goal is about trying to get people to rethink what they're doing and from a different point of view, and perhaps there are some better way. Um, I can give you an example. Um, I've helped a CPG company for a few years now. Um, They're the largest in their category, best performing, blah, 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 all of that. Uh, But they somehow just could not get um, MBA talents to uh, rank them as one of the top choices. They always get uh, put in the category of safety. You know, mm. if I don't get into all the crafts or the, you know, uh, General Mills in the world, then, okay, maybe I'll consider them. Um, so I help them think about from whose point of view are you doing your presentation, right? Mm. Think about, I think you and your audience, I, I think a lot of people have had experience um, when they look at schools or when they look at houses, you know, you look at one, two, three, four dozens of them, they all blend together. They all sound alike, look alike. And the same thing with companies recruiting talents. Mm-hmm. Um, the point of view that most of them come from are, hey, we are company X. We are the largest category in Y. And we are the longest, biggest, baddest, most glorious. So on and on and on is really about them. And so they sound and look just like everyone else. And so what I help them do is, how would you think about pivoting the entire presentation experience from the recruits point of view? How would you think if they come in and they get primed to recall their own experience, in this case, as a food company, and so get them to recall their favorite food experience, share them in groups, tell it one or get one or two to share and then extrapolate. But what is it about these favorite food experience that get us all sort of gooey eye, gooey eye about it? And then escalate that to an overarching principle and then tie that into, well, that's why we are here for, except that we can scale it based on millions and millions and millions of household as units of impact. How would you like to join us? Totally different, right? It's uh, so profound. And we know that now through the neuroscience of this. And it's funny because what you're talking about, we spend a lot of time with our clients in the sales and marketing world because they have the same issues. And they want to talk about how great they are and all their features and benefits and facts and figures and what everybody says and blah, blah, blah. And nobody cares. And they don't know why nobody cares. <laughs> um, and, and I love what you say about the, the heart of persuasion lies storytelling. And, and I think the mistake most people make, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, is, and we talked to our clients about this, is, you know, it's like, you know, King Arthur and Excalibur. Um, you tell a story and you want to be the hero. You want to be King Arthur. When what you need to think about is how do you make the person you're talking to the hero where you maybe get to bring Excalibur, you get to show them, they get to be King Arthur, maybe you're Merlin, right? You get to bring Mm -hmm, the person who mm -hmm. brings them access to Excalibur. And when people figure that out and they figure out the order of how to do that, it doesn't it just change the entire dynamic of the person receiving the story? 
Yeah. Well, first of all, I would never dare to correct you, Jeff. (laughs) (laughs) And second of all, you're 100% right on in this. And and it's that if you are trying to get people to look at things differently, why should they look at it from your point of view instead of from their own point of view? Because they won't. You're not making the change. (laughs) You want them to make the change. So get them to look at it from their point of view. Yeah. And that's what we we talk. We call it self-preservation orientation. Everyone has a position of self-preservation orientation. And so when you're talking to me, my initial subconscious response is always going to be self-preservation. And when you try to convince me to do something that you want me to do, naturally, all my biological defenses are going to go up, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But now, to your point, when you can tweak that narrative and get them to think differently experientially and then see at the end why you might be the best option for them to do what they already wanted to do anyway, Mm -hmm, then it makes the mm -hmm. decision easier. Now, here's what I want to get into a little bit with your book because it's wonderfully laid out, very easy to follow and very practical. So in the first part, you talk about the anatomy of a story. Can you give us just a little bit of the cliff notes of of that section of the anatomy of a story? Yeah, so uh, it's a time honor um, revelations by Joseph Campbell that a lot of the first generation um, teachers or leadership storytelling reference to. And um, the cliff note of that is that across time, culture, geography, language, situations, there are millions of different combinations possible, but it boils down to the same uh, archetype. And um, your listeners probably have seen many different combinations, um, but the um, archetype or or the anatomy of stories is that there's a, now I would call even more simplified than how the book is outlined, um, it's called IRS. That oh, wait a minute, you just gave me not, yeah, not that I know, IRS. I know, not that IRS, <laughs> not our friends in the Internal Revenue Services. Boy. I, I, I love you if you're listening, by the way, IRS. <laughs> yes, yeah, my hat <laughs> off to you, IRS. But sorry, but not talking about you, IRS. I'm talking about intriguing beginning, okay. riveting middle, and then satisfying end. Intriguing beginning, riveting middle, satisfying end. Mm. So if you just rem- don't forget everything else from today, just remember IRS. Oops, not that IRS. As the choice IRS. Um, make sure that when you open, whatever it is the opening point for you, that you provide something intriguing mm. that stop people in their track and go, huh? Or hmm? Or whoa. And then once you've earned their attention, then you provide a riveting middle. Now, by riveting, because some I've been asked, what do you mean by riveting? Okay, riveting is that there's consistent but varying tension throughout the middle. And then the end is where they find a sense of closure and that gives them a sense of satisfaction. Mm, that's good. Really simple. Like everything you do is very easy. It's simple, not easy, right? Simple to think mm-hmm. about. And now that's a very easy thing to remember. So I like it. I-R-S. Very easy to remember from a structural standpoint. Um, okay. So now you talk about 
the idea of embedding emotional qualities within a narrative. So you talk about how, no matter how well told a story is, it, it really can't find its full effect unless you embed it with an emotional quality within the purpose. Mm-hmm. So tell, tell me a little bit more about that. That one I was curious about. Yeah. So um, I, again, uh, feel a bit awkward uh talking about this in front of someone who is an expert in neuroscience. Um, His name is Jeff Lomfield, by the way. Uh, But I I think it's one simple fact that we must acknowledge is that we can't make decisions without our emotions. You know, it doesn't matter how people think that I'm a very logical person. I remove all emotions in decision-making. It's just not true. We need the emotional component capability of our brain to make decisions. Now, acknowledging that though, how can we leverage that fact of how our brain works to make sure that the story resonate with the output that you intended? And so um, again, very simple uh, example. In what you're trying to persuade your audience to do, to think, are you trying to sell something that um, that is going to help them to gain something? Or are you trying to help them to prevent or minimize loss? Okay, those are very two, two very different uh, motivations. And therefore, you have to think about the emotion that attached to it. If you, what you're selling is intended for them to gain something, then the emotion, at least part of it, should be envy. Mm, good. If you're trying to minimize or prevent loss, then at least part of the emotion that you're trying to inspire is fear. But neither emotions should be the beginning or end. It should end with always hope. Because envy or fear or some combination of or variant of these emotions, while you uh, keep pumping those emotions, it can make people feel paralyzed. But hope is a motivation um, on steroid. Mm. If you provide hope at the very end, then it gives people it gives people a way to imagine how can I make it happen rather than dooming or glooming or oh this is too hard because someone else can do it I can't. Yeah, that's so good and and we talk a lot about modulating neurochemistry right? When you're storytelling. And and I love this because you're touching on this concept of, see, negative, what we we think of as negative emotions, fear, envy, greed, those things, they they spike our cortisol. Now, in in a good way, because at times it it can help us focus our attention, right? So now my attention, you have my attention, I'm focused on something. But if I stay down that lane too long, that it'll turn into distress, which to your point, puts me into paralysis, which leads to inactivity or inaction. But then by translating that into the hope, then now what you do is you increase my oxytocin, which Mm -hmm. then drives my motivation, which increases my willingness to take action. And uh, I love that because it so aligns with the... the storytelling approach you take so aligns with the neurochemistry of how we're biologically built anyways. So 
I think a lot of a lot of times leaders miss out on that because some of them are so just it's all about rah rah inspiration. But I'm drifting off because mm-hmm. you haven't really got me at my attention to anything that causes anything. You haven't put anything at risk for mm-hmm. my current status quo, and you're just a rah rah guy or gal. And so yeah, yeah, great, motivating, and yeah, if there's nothing at risk to me, then I'll, maybe I'll follow you. But the, it seems to me, and tell me if I'm wrong on this, the great leaders that are great communicators, that are great storytellers, know how to inject the right emotion in the right, I call it the emotion coaster, the right time so they can take people on that journey of maybe a negative type of emotion to then one of hope and inspiration. And they can take them on this journey to where at the end, they're ready to run through walls, yeah. right? Based on the story. And do you find that to be true with some of the best leaders that you've coached from a storytelling standpoint? Yeah, I, I think um, when, uh, for example, you know, it's been a tough year and a half uh, worldwide. And, but, you know, there uh, oftentimes when there are crises, there are opportunities. Um, but how do you get people to look up from the crisis that they've been dealing with and look around or look above them or look ahead that there are opportunities ahead and try to unstuck themselves from their current crisis? Um, you know, especially... Uh, for example, real um, residential real estates have been booming in a lot of places. Yep. Um, commercial real estate, on the other hand, uh, is just taken a nosedive uh, for a long time. And who knows where the future of offices um, is going, for example, right? And um, But there are opportunities now that I'm coaching a couple of clients on, um, there are these recovery properties uh, where that can be with the right amount of financing and uh, timing uh, that where there's huge profit to be had. And so um, the key to planning that pitch actually is not about laying out the modeling and the projections and the numbers. The key to that is actually tapping into um, potential investors' imagination. Mm. And I think as adults, very unfortunately, that is a huge part of our muscle that is gone dormant for a long time. And whoever can effectively tap into people's imagination, um, underlaying with hope, with a sense of hope, it's going to win big. Yeah, and I think this is really important because it leads to me one of my other topics I wanted to address with you because imagination... Uh, by its very nature, is not data centric. Imagination is <laughs> is internally visualization centric, right? So, and the only way to tap into someone's internal visualization mechanism is drum roll <laughs> <laughs> storytelling. Yep, yep. Uh, so, if, is that is that how you see it as well? Like, if you really want to get capture someone's imagination, you can't tell them a bunch of data. You got to paint a picture, right? Yep. And you need to attach a person to it. So uh, I um, just finished a research report on uh, major gift fundraising and philanthropy, how philanthropy approach, um, you know, uh, people who can afford six, seven, eight uh, figure gifts. And um, oftentimes uh, the knowing the person truly understanding their story, where they're coming from, um, is really missing. And so a lot of times that um, person that you're attaching the cause to 
is um, is what uh, sociologists call the identifiable victim effect. Mm. Um, or my fundraising colleagues uh, simply put put a face on the case. <laughs> I like it because. Yeah we must be able to visualize in the story a face that we can picture in our head, right? right. And whether it's victim or heroes, um, we want to know, oh yeah, I, I think I've met that person before. Or in fact, I know exactly who that person is. Isn't that fascinating? I think it was the Ohio State, the Ohio State University, yes. as we like to say around here. Uh, they did a study a few years back on, and the, and the concept that came out of it was, was transportation, was when, when a great effective storyteller communicates that way, it transports the listener into that narrative. And so in your case, what you're talking about is the, 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 the face of the case, or however you said that, I probably said it wrong. Um, it, it's that you, you, you attach yourself to that character, right? And you become mm-hmm. emotionally invested in all of the experiences of that character. And you really kind of almost embody um, positively or negatively what that character might be experiencing and therefore then want to do something to, to either experience the highs or help them out of the lows. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. In fact, um, I didn't, I should have thought about this before I came on the show, but I can send you the link or maybe you, you, you probably know this already where um, there are studies where the story, a storyteller and a story listener, they're in a lab together and their, their brain were hooked up to, uh, machines that can measure their brain activities and as, as well as what part of their brains right. are being light up, lit up. And oftentimes the synchronization happens between the storyteller and the story listeners and the same level of activity as well as uh, same regions of their brain being lit up. Because so then you're literally your brain and the other person's brain are literally in sync with each other. It gives me goosebumps to think about it. Yeah, it's pretty powerful, right? I think it was uh, Dr. Yuri Hassan and some of the work at Princeton that really pioneered that work. And Mm -hmm. and it, it was the first time that I had seen that we all know that great storytellers are great communicators, but to see it with technology to show that your brain starts to light up a millisecond delayed right in the same place my brain does when I'm telling a story, my goodness, like, is there any refuting anymore that storytelling is the best way to communicate? Um, Yeah, yeah. So there are a lot of these aged old wisdoms that we all know is true, that works, and now science is just catching up to it. That's right. And now, um, I think thanks to technology, Mm. there are ways to break down these inborn gifts, for example, storytelling, um, that you can learn it bit by bit. If you don't feel like you're naturally good at it, it's, it's totally okay because there's so many ways to reverse engineer your way to be a great storyteller. Yeah. And I want to ask you about that because I think so many people have the misconception. There's a big difference between a trait and a gift slash skill. Mm. And, and we, we tend to use gift as a separate thing Well, you, they're just, they have that gift uh, or they have that, you know, the, the, listen, the trait is something that you're born with, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. A, a, to me, a gift that someone has, whenever you explore what their quote unquote gift is, you generally find the millions of hours of practice behind it. It turned out to be a skill. 
Yep. And they just worked at it much harder than you did. And that's why it looks so easy to them. It looks like a gift. Yep. So now let's unpack that for the audience. Let's work that reverse, let's re- reverse engineer that because I want everyone out there to hear this. You may not think that you're a, a storyteller. You don't have the quote unquote gift of storytelling. <laughs> and I can tell you from experience, it's not a gift, it's a skill that anyone can possess, but there's nobody better than Esther to tell you how to reverse engineer it. So what, what, what advice do you have for folks in that regard? Well, several things. Um, no matter what, whether you are strike by a genius moment or whether you work hours and hours and hours on a story, always, always feel tested. So what you think might be brilliant or terrible doesn't really matter feel tested to people who are as close to those you are trying to convince and persuade. Um, There's just no getting uh, away with it. Um, Again, people who seem to be really good at it, who seem to be born with it, they feel test all the time because they tell stories all the time. And they subconsciously or consciously, they gauge their reaction and calibrate the the, the facial uh, recognitions of is this happy or is it a suspicious look? And they're doing that millions of millions of minutes and hundreds of hours, thousands of hours spent on this. And so, um, again, don't... Don't come from your point of view, test it, test it, test it on the audience. Now, that's um, one way to reverse engineer yourself uh, to be a great storyteller. And the other thing that uh, precedes storytelling is called story collecting. So I am actually an introvert. I have two cups of coffee before I came on the show. (laughs) I have psyched myself up and talked myself into, hey, you know, you committed to this interview, you're talking to another expert, and there's no backing out to it. Okay. So anyway, what I'm trying to say is that when you don't, um, you don't have to be a great teller actually first, you need to be an empathetic, respectful, curious listener collect stories. It's just like great writers read a ton. Great storytellers have to go collect a ton of stories. That's so good. Good. And then the last thing is everything that I've outlined in the book is that there's emotion, there's structures, um, there's visuals. Um, There are uh, a ton of ways that you can reverse engineer yourself into a great storyteller. But those two um, I think a lot of people overlooked. I just want to emphasize here. No, that's so helpful. And I think that most people that communicate for a living, which by the way, if you talk to another human being in some regard throughout the day and you get paid to do that in any way, shape or form, you are a professional communicator. So that's you. And so you probably need to work on this skill. Um, most will tell you that they didn't even realize they were field testing. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and that they were out communicating. And, and by the way, if you if you are field testing and now you're going to become more consciously aware of it and, and you you see that most people have a confused look on their face when you talk, that should probably tell you uh-huh. you need to work uh-huh. on simplification. Uh, now, with, when it comes to simplification, you, you reference 
combining the power of story with simple visuals. I think you, yeah. you, you mentioned Northwestern University professor and school visual cognition lab said, if you can get the visual on the whiteboard, it'll dominate the meeting. Mm-hmm. Why is that so powerful? T- t- and, and then tell us how, give us some simple tips on in our business practices. Cause everybody, if you think about it right now, as our listener, the last meeting you were actually in, in a, probably in a zoom <laughs> or, or virtual, but the last <laughs> one you can remember being in where there was a whiteboard, Mm-hmm. What do you remember about that entire meeting? It was probably something that was actually drawn on the whiteboard, right? Why is that so powerful? And how can people learn how to do that? Yeah, visual elements requires almost about 40% of our brain power to process. And that's why visuals are powerful because your brain is working hard to process it without you realizing that all the heavy lifting is being done. And so that's why my colleague Steve Frankenary said that whoever puts, uh, puts up the visual on the whiteboard dominate the the conversation. And that's true. Oftentimes when it doesn't need to be a whiteboard, back in the good old days when we can meet in person, a napkin or a piece of scratch paper, um, you can, the more casually done, the better. That's number one thing. And number two is that I advise my clients, um, I like to say, save the best for never. So that means save your best visual and never include it in the slide when you have an opportunity to uh, present to them, whether it's in person or via Zoom, because you want that element of spontaneity and surprise and almost as if, oh, Jeff, here, let me show you. Scratch, scratch, dot, dot. I just came up with that. Of course, that's not true. Um, as if this is a, 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 a spontaneous moment that we came up with, okay? The key to that is you actually want to conceive that simple visual well in advance, well ahead of time, and then even including when during the conversations should you bring it up. Earlier tends to be better because when you leave the visual out, whether it's on a Zoom board, a whiteboard, or a piece of paper, you just let it sit there, let it float out there. And then that visual continues to loom around and continues to influence conversation. And a well-thought-out visual, I'll, I'll, I'll add to that, is that it invites people to add to it. And so I describe it, Steve said, dominate the conversation. I would rather call it create a sandbox for people to play in. Collaborates the conversation, not dominates. How's that? Mm-hmm. Well, come come yeah. on now. So, so, so now, Esther, now you're making me wish I would have never invited you on because you just gave away my biggest secret uh, for how I communicate. No, I'm kidding. And I teach, we teach all of our clients that exact principle and that exact concept on the simple visuals and how powerful they are because of the way they're processed from a simplicity standpoint, there's nothing better. So we're, we're coming close to, to the end of the runway here, but there's a couple last things I want to cover with you. Cause the, by the way, and I said it before, but let, let, let the story do the work. The book is tremendous. If you care about the way you tell stories at all, you should go get this book <laughs> and you. read it. Uh, you talk about the, uh, let's close with this because there's so much we didn't even come close to scratching the surface on. 
um, the three rules of smart storytelling. And you've got three very specific things that you talk about. And we've talked a little bit about all of them, but you kind of put them into summary. Number one, I'm going to go in reverse order. Okay. Understand the story of you isn't actually about you. What did you mean by that? The story might be um, about, it's a story of how uh, Jeff grew up um, learning the power of story, but the story is about who Jeff gets to work with and influence and teach and show how everyone can become great at storytelling and become change agent. So that's what I mean by Jeff and his grandfather's story. It's yours. No one else can own it, but it's not about you. The, the, the spiritual leader, if you will, of the story, even those Jeff and his grandfather, it's about the audience. Do you hear that, everybody? You've heard me preach this for 10 years. Now <laughs> listen to someone else who actually knows what she's talking about. You're, here's the thing though that's so important and powerful that, that when I discovered this was whose agenda are you on when you go to tell a story? Because if you're on your own agenda, you'll make the story about yourself and nobody will care. Even if the story is about you though, or your papa or your dad or whomever, if you're on the other person's agenda and you truly care about what they care about and you want to help them do something meaningful, they will interpret that story as if it's their own, even though it is technically about you. Love it. Couldn't have said it better myself. Okay, the second one. Know the difference between proving and persuading. Come on now, give me some of this. Love this one. Come on. Well, uh, I think so many people I've worked with, myself included, direct experience, I can pull in all the numbers and data. I can give you the tightest logical argument and it doesn't change a single mind, person's mind. On the other hand, throughout history, we know that people have been persuaded to do all sorts of stuff without much of any proof. And so don't mistake proving versus persuading. A lot of people think, especially the better educated, the more advanced degrees we collect, the more we tend to mush the two together as if, if I can prove my point, then I can persuade someone. That's just not true. It's excellent. Thank you. Again, we've been saying this. I love hearing it from an expert. Uh, and I think so much of it's tied to that like Dr. Tony Jack says, the analytical network versus the emotional empathic network, right? I persuade you emotionally, emotively, empathically. Uh, the brain will then need information to validate and justify. That's where the proof is. But if I try to convince you, you will reject me, right? You will go into skepticism, self-preservation, love it. That kind of leads to the third one. Know when to intrigue or delight and when to use data. So mm -hmm. t tell us a little bit about your philosophy on that. Know, know when to intrigue and delight or when to use data. Like what's, when do you use which? It's about knowing your audience. Um, you and I are story disciples. So of course we are all about story, but I know for a fact that sometimes people don't want to hear stories. In fact, it's a good sign sometimes they, when they don't want to hear stories because they want to get into the weeds and the nitty gritties. And so when you want to, there is a time when people just want to show me the data, show me the proof, but at least you 
got them in a place where they want to go in and verify and understand and, and sort through and analyze. But there are times when either they're tired or they're skeptical or they're just not interested. And so that's when you have to Im- include the intriguing moment because when you ask them, when you invite them, hey, look at this. Isn't that interesting? Right? Again, then you're tapping into their imagination rather than the analytical part of their mind that both are there, but you need to know when to do what. Yeah, the order absolutely matters. I I love that. And and so many people, though, we respond... um, out of our own stress, when we feel like someone's trying to put us on the spot, I don't, I'm not, I'm tired. I don't have time for you. Just give me the data. Give me the facts. So our stress level goes up. So we just data dump and regurgitate a bunch of facts that don't have a lot of meaning. Uh, And being able to do what you said, ask a really intriguing, provocative question that taps into some meaning and emotion. You're still giving them the information they asked for, but you're presenting it in a slightly different way through that narrative. That's great. So let's, uh, let's recap a little bit here. The big things we took away from is IRS, right? For, for the simple storyteller, intrigue, make it intriguing, make it riveting and make it satisfying. Follow that arc and you'll be fine. We talked a lot about how to use emotion, how to tap into that emotion. We talked a lot about the application of it. And there's so many different elements in the book with, with templates that I want you guys to go dig into. Uh, let, let the story do the work. You can find that in any of the book retailers, but you can also find it if you if you go to the website. Now, tell them tell them where they should go for your website. Leadership Story Lab is leadershipstorylab.com. Correct. Leadershipstorylab.com. And, and I was on there before, and I will tell you, it's itself full of a bunch of rich information. A new podcast that you launched not too long ago. As well. Yes, yes, for the, the Kellogg School of Management Center for Family Enterprises. So multi-generational family business leaders telling stories about their families. Um, I've got really, really um, honest and personal struggles, uh, family struggles, and uh, it's a story-based podcast. And so um, I have been told that sometimes you need to uh, set aside time because you sometimes people want to binge listen to it. <laughs> nice. Love it. Well, that's going to be exciting. So I want folks to check that out. And um, Esther, I, I know I set the bar high for you when I introduced you, but you did not disappoint. Uh, I personally took away some really key tidbits from you. Um, I feel like I got, uh, you know, I got some free coaching today. I love it. Oh, and, wow. Uh, and, 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 I, and I want uh, I want our audience to be able to go and check out your work and and, um, and follow you because you are an expert in this field. And, and I know you're adding a lot of value to a lot of people. So thank you again very much for being on the Driving Change podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's, it's been a blast talking to you. Best of luck in 21. And I'm sure you and I will be in touch again very soon. Thank you. Do you love news about LinkedIn, Indeed, Google, and just about every other recruitment tech company out there? Hell yeah. I'm Chad. I'm Cheese. We're the Chad and Cheese Podcast. All the latest recruiting news and insights are on our show. Dripping in snark and attitude. Subscribe today wherever you listen to your podcasts. We We out. out.